Good morning. Our scripture passage today is from Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 through 21. Please stand as you are able in recognition of the authority of God's word. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time... When the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. My name is Craig. I'm one of the elders here. I'm thankful we get to open up God's word together this morning. I wanted to mention real quick, if this is your first time here, If you exit out of these doors and go to your left, right there in the middle of the hallway is that connection table. Paul may have mentioned this already, but we would love to get to know you a little bit better. There's be some people there. We'd love to put a gift card in your hands just as a thank you for joining us this morning. Um, So make sure you take note of that. Also, as you came in these same doors here, right there on that table is a stack of those scripture journals that I mentioned last week. It's a scripture journal for Daniel. Um... It's got the scripture on the one side, it's got a journal page on the other side, and it's been helpful for a lot of people as we've been going through different sermon series uh, to have that resource so you can take notes on these sermons as we walk through them together. All right. Let's just ask for the Lord's blessing again on our time in his word. Pray with me. Father, um, we exalt your name in this place. Blessed be your name forever and ever. To you belongs wisdom and insight, might and strength. You change times and seasons. You remove kings and set up kings. You give wisdom and knowledge. You reveal deep and hidden things. Give us wisdom from your word right now. 
Reveal to us your greatness through your word. Fill our hearts with great confidence to live for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Something we've been talking a lot about is formation. You're going to probably hear me say that about a million more times as we go through Daniel. Formation happens all the time, whether you intend it or don't. You're being formed into some shape, some image, whether you know it or not. But what does that actually look like in our lives? How does that happen? Well, uh, there's a variety of ways. You might remember some of these examples. We'll get to that in a second. But the first one you might remember is I talked about uh, a study that said that if you live in New York City, just by living in New York City, it's actually scientifically proven that you will walk faster for living in New York City just because of the prevailing culture, the attitudes, the values. You'll walk faster if you live in New York. That's more subconscious, though. That's subconscious formation, not active. You're not actively trying to think about walking faster. This here, the wisdom pyramid, is more conscious formation. Sometimes you've got to feed yourself. If you remember back in grade school, you might have heard about the, the food pyramid with all your various food groups. I mentioned this a while back. You've got the grains on the bottom and the meats and milks, and at the very top you've got the junk food. This is the Wisdom Pyramid. This was put together by Brett McCracken. He wrote a book by the same name, The Wisdom Pyramid. I'd recommend it to you. But this is the idea that instead of consuming social media and the internet as our base, put the Bible on the bottom, and then your church tradition, nature and beauty, books, and then the junk food there on the top. That would be more of a conscious, chosen formation in our lives. Day to day, we're shaped by many things. But fundamentally, all the formation that happens in us is shaped by our choices, what we do or don't do, where we go or don't go, what we say or don't say, what we think or don't think. You get it. C.S. Lewis articulates this the best, and I think this quote's going to be up here on the screen. This is what C.S. Lewis said about this. He said, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with your innumerable choices, all your life long you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us, at each moment, is progressing to the one state or the other. Our choices shape us, little or big, either into the image of Christ or into something far less. Even this moment, where you're sitting right now and you're hearing me speak, even this moment, whether or not you're going to engage with what God wants to speak to you through his word or not, that choice is going to have an impact on you. The boys in Babylon, as I'm going to call them throughout this series, it's a lot easier than saying their names. 
the boys in Babylon face some big decisions in this chapter. Decisions that are going to shape them. And what makes it more difficult is there's opposition to the choices that they're going to make. There's opposition to walking in the ways of God. Decisions to live for the kingdom of God over any other kingdom is going to come with a cost. And that goes for me and you too. So here's what I want here's what I believe God wants to do for us in you this morning through his word by the power of his spirit. God wants to give us confidence this morning. Confidence to live for him no matter what the world throws at you. It might be a fiery furnace or a den full of lions. Those are coming. But more likely for you and for me, it's going to be something like ridicule, shame, marginalization, rejection. It's more likely that it's going to be looking like a weirdo. Loss of a job, loss of money, loss of honor and prestige. God wants to stir our hearts this morning to have confidence that living for him when the world is against you is not only right, it's blessed. It's the best way to live. When you live trusting him and you live for his kingdom, then you're really alive. You're really living. So let's get into the story. What's happening in Daniel 1 is a Babylonian formation plan. Look at what they did. Here's the Babylonian strategy of formation. It's going to be up here on your screen. The first thing they did was a new diet. This is verse 5, the first part of verse 5. If you're looking in your Bible, chapter 1, verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. What you eat shapes you? How does that work? I mean, maybe it impacts your figure, maybe that shape of you, but that wasn't what the king had in mind. This has more to do with dependence, creating dependence. It's like the old saying that says, don't bite the hand that feeds you. The king wanted himself in the place of provider. He wanted these cream of the crop exiles that he brought from Israel to be dependent on him. And so the strategy is this. The Babylonian strategy is we will satisfy your appetites. Whatever you hunger for, not just food, whatever you hunger for, we've got the answer for you. Depend on me. Here's the second strategy. New education. Second part of, the second part of verse 5. They were to be educated for three years. We all know that education is formational. What you learn shapes you. These young men were to be taught Babylonian mythology, literature, history, language. It's an immersion into the worldview of the Babylonians. This would lead them not to not only think like a Babylonian, but far more importantly, this type of education is going to help them to take on or cause them, ideally, at least in the Babylonian's mind, to take on the Babylonian value system. And so the strategy is, we're going to shape how you think. We're going to shape your appetites, we're going, to shape, we're going to satisfy your appetites, we're going to shape what you think. And then third, they give them a new job. That's the last part of verse 5. At the end of the time, they were to stand before the king. Work brings a sense of purpose, a sense of contribution to a bigger picture or a bigger cause. By providing a job, most likely at the highest levels of society, 
This ties these boys' purpose and position to the king. That's a powerful formational force. And here's the strategy. We will give you purpose. We'll give your life purpose. And here's the fourth. New names. Last one. New names. That's verses 6 and 7. The list of their names, the Hebrew names, were Daniel, which means God is my judge. Hananiah, which means the Lord is gracious. Mishael, who is what God is. And Azariah, the Lord is my helper. And then these new names that they got, we all know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Belteshazzar, that's a mouthful. Those names are tied to the Babylonian pantheon of gods. Their new names are looped in to their religious system. And so the strategy is, we define who you are. Really, this strategy of formation is a strategy of, a, of assimilation. We want to make you like us. We want to make you in our image. Brothers and sisters, kingdoms and empires change. But the strategies to shape our appetites, our purpose, our thinking, who we are, that formational process is alive and well, and we know it. Our own sinful flesh works against us. The world around us plays a big role in that as well. But do not also forget that there is an animating force behind it all in Satan. The world, the flesh, and the devil are against us. And that, that formational force that is coming at you and at me in this very moment, when we walk out of this place, in all parts of our life, that formation must be resisted. So what did the boys do in this situation? What would you do if you were in their seat? Well, they could have rejected it at all and potentially chosen to die. They would have been martyrs, been heroes, but that's not what happened. They chose to work within the system, yet for the kingdom of God. And that idea of working within the system, but for the kingdom of God, that's what Pastor John Tyson describes as the beautiful resistance. A resistance to the formation of the world. But not by cutting ourselves off or forming some sort of Christian ghetto where we're all huddled up close together, but by engaging the kingdom of this world. Not living according to their standards and their rules being formed by them, but living for another kingdom. For the kingdom of God. That what we're seeing right here is these boys understanding what it means to be at home in Babylon. We talked about that last week. They're learning what it means to, to live at home, to make Babylon home, but live for the kingdom of God. Just recap it real, real quick. They said, they said yes to the name change. They said yes to the new job. They said yes to the new education. But they said no to the food. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. 
So when it says defiling, it's a ceremonial defiling that would happen from eating food, which that defilement would be an impediment to worshiping God, a wall, a block to worshiping God. Now, why this would be a defilement or why they, they chose to draw the line here is not exactly clear. It could have been that the food itself was not according to God's standards, was not kosher. It could be the way that that food was used, as if that food was sacrificed to idols, and therefore if they were eating the food, they would be worshiping the idol, and they didn't want to do that. It could also have been, because this food was coming from the king, if you ate the food, it was almost like saying, it was almost like forming a covenant or an agreement saying, yes, I'm with you, King Nebuchadnezzar, and they didn't want to do that either. We don't really know the reason. Text doesn't tell us. But whatever the reason is, to their conscience, they would not take it. So they resolved to stand firm, to resist. Now, let me ask you a question. What do you think would lead these young kids, they're teenagers, to stand up to the premier military cultural power of that time. I've got to think, if they're that young, that it started before they ever even got there. The king, for most of their short lives in Judah, before they were brought off into exile, was a king named Josiah. He was certainly the king for the majority of their parents' lives. Here's what Second Kings says about Josiah. It'll be up here on your screen. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah likely crossed paths with Josiah. They, they were part of the nobility. Those were the people that were taken from Judah originally. They certainly knew of him and of his ways. And what's unique about Josiah is not only did he do what was right in God's eyes, but he did so from a very young age, eight years old. At eight years old, he was made king. That's when he began to reign. And immediately, at eight years old, he set in motion reforms to bring Israel back to the wholehearted, exclusive worship of God and God alone. So here's a thought. So we think about Why would these guys be ready to resist as young people? Children, I'm talking to you right now. Teenagers, college students, I want you to hear me. You are not too young to live for God. You are not too young to make your life about the kingdom that will never be destroyed that will never be conquered, that will never disappoint, that will never put you to shame. Now is the time to resist the formation and the temptation of the world and to orient your life toward Jesus. I do not care how young you are. Now is the time to choose to follow Jesus. He and he alone is the one that is worthy of all your life. He is the one that you were made for. Follow him. You're not too young. Here's another thought as we think about these guys. I can't help but think about the impact of the stories 
in the life of someone like Josiah on the lives of those guys. That's why I love biographies. Yeah, I know. Biographies, sometimes it can make us feel like, I'm never going to live up to that standard. How could I possibly be like that person? I'm just an ordinary old person here. We can feel that way reading this passage. We look at these boys. We see what they're doing. We're seeing the way they're standing up strong for him. But that's not the intent. That's not the intent of biography. That's not the intent of this passage for us. This Bible passage, those biographies too, is to set our spirit-filled imaginations on fire with faith-filled imagination and possibilities about what could be for simple people like you and me who entrust themselves to a mighty God. Here's a third thought to all of you. The people I talked to before, were too, they're not too young to entrust their whole life to, to God. And all of us, no matter where you're at in life, you're not too old either. Today is the day to trust your life to the Lord. Right now. Right now. It's not too late to live your life for the greatest king, for King Jesus. Your choices today, as small as they may seem, will certainly echo to eternity. Now, at the beginning I said, I wanted to fill you, I wanted with you to observe from God's word how this passage gives us confidence to live for him in a world that's opposed to him. And here are some reasons, two reasons I want to highlight for confidence in making that decision like these boys did to follow him. It's right here in this passage. And here's the first reason. God will provide. Last week, I mentioned that this passage is structured around three God gaves. It's verse two. The Lord gave the king some temple tools and the people into Babylon's hand. Verse nine. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And then in verse 17, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. So when Daniel and the boys made the decision not to eat the food, that could have been deadly. The chief of the eunuchs who was assigned to watch over them said, basically said that, do you want me to get my head cut off? Could have been deadly for him. But God provided, God gave, he gave them favor. They went to the eunuch and then they went down down a rung in the ladder to the steward and they set up a test. Body by Daniel. Here we go. Ten days. We'll eat vegetables. We'll drink water. You eat the king's food and then we'll do a comparison. Just like in one of those ads you see online, here's my before picture, here's my after picture. We're going to line up right next to each other. We'll do a comparison. See which one works better. And God provided. They passed the test. And the provision did not stop there. God gave again. He gave them academic skill and learning to such a degree that the king said that they were far better than everybody else. What verse 17 suggests when it says that God give them, gave them skill and learning, it does not suggest a, uh, like a supernatural download of information like the movie Matrix or something, just plugging in all the information into their head. God blessed their effort, helping them learn, strengthening them in the process. So what's important for us to take away for our lives is that as these 
these men, these young men, these boys, lived in, in the kingdom of Babylon for the kingdom of God. God gave them what they needed. God provided. God gave. Last week we talked uh, quite a while about how the Bible describes us as exiles, that we live in Babylon, not the ancient empire, but in a place that's not our home, that's inhospitable, a place opposed to God and his ways. We're not yet home. We're like the Israelites after God brought them out of Egypt, wandering in the desert. The promise of God is to press on toward a much better place. That's what he promises us. A much, a much better place. A much greater reward. A promised land. Our true home. Where sin and sorrow flee away. That's where we're headed. That's the promise he gives us. And like the Israelites wandering in the desert, there's a promise of provision for you and for me in the wilderness. Like manna dropped from heaven. Enough for today. Straight out of the hand of God. But, like the Israelites, some of us want to go back to Egypt. We want to return to our former way of life. We think the promised land is a myth. We think that somehow what we have here, what we had before, it's going to be better. And some of us, We want to just settle down in the desert. Just call the wilderness home. Say, hey, this is good enough for me. There's no reason to head toward that promised land. That's too hard. I'm good. I'm good. I'm done. And some of us, we think that the destination, the goal, is more about the manna. Give me what I need right now. Satisfy all my desires right now. More than it's about provision for God to get us where we're going. The promise of God's provision, the promise to provide, is to give us what we need when we need it. And sometimes it's going to be big and flashy, like sudden favor with a eunuch, with a high-ranking government official. But most of the times, it's going to be steady grace, like strength to work hard as you study or as, as you go to your job day after day. But no matter what road the Lord has you on for your life, here's what you can be sure of. You can have confidence that God will provide for you along your journey toward your heavenly reward. He will give you what you need for today. And if you're confident in that, if you know that he's going to provide as you make your way toward your heavenly home, which is far greater, do you know what that does for you now? What that does for your day today? It fills you with joy. It fills you with freedom to live for him. You don't have to worry. You don't have to fear. You don't even have to fight He's leading you home. He's going to get you there. He's going to give you what you need to make it. Through your darkest days and your deepest sorrows, 
through your highest joys, through the most perplexing problems, he'll be with you, giving you what you need all the way there. Listen to the words of our king, King Jesus. This is what he said. He's talking to us. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You just got to pause right there. Wow. You're going to make it. You're going to make it home. It's his pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide, for your, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. And with treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That is a life of confidence in God's provision. That's a life fully alive. So, that's the first reason for confidence. God will provide. He will provide for you. And here's the second reason that you can have confidence today to live for him while we're still in Babylon. Here's the second reason. God's kingdom rules over all. One of the unique features of this chapter, and this chapter really sets up the whole rest of the remainder of Daniel, is the final verse. Kind of comes out of nowhere. Verse 21. You can look at it with me if you have your Bible. Verse 21 says, And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Random. We're all about these guys and their dietary restrictions and these tests and the favor of God and what God did. And then all of a sudden, Daniel was there until until King Cyrus. What is that all about? Do you remember how this chapter began? Look at verses 1 and 2 with me again. Let's read those again. Verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. The book of Daniel begins with shame. Here's the scenario. Here's what verses 1 and 2 are. Big bad Babylonian God marches his army into Judah. He steals the king, he steals some people, and he steals the tools that were used in the worship of the God of Israel. And then insult to injury, we're going to take those tools, we're going to put them in the treasure house of the God of Babylon. That's shameful. Taking the religious artifacts from one house of worship and putting it in another God's treasure room, that's a total flex. They're trying to show who's boss here, who rules here. Look at how powerful our God is. Look at how powerful our country is. Look at how sophisticated our military is. Look at how rich we are. That's how the chapter, how Daniel, the whole book of Daniel opens. And then the chapter closes with that little line that Daniel was there until Cyrus. What does that mean? Cyrus was the king of a new empire. Not the Babylonian empire. The Persian empire. In 539 BC, he and his army conquered Babylon. And so, that mighty Babylonian empire that was boasting about all its greatness at the beginning of the, of the chapter got outlasted 
By who? By Daniel. And by Daniel's God. You know what that means? God's man is still there. God's witness is still there. God's kingdom still stands. And there's more. There's more to it, to the story than that. When Cyrus took over, those vessels that were stolen from the temple, you might remember this from Ezra, they were sent back. God's own people carried them back. What begins looking like a shameful collapse, the death of God's promises and and really his kingdom, it ends with further proof that God's kingdom rules over all. Assyrian, Babylonian, Persian, Greek, Roman, yes, even the good old U.S. of A. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but there is one kingdom that rules over all. The kingdom of God will never be shaken. It will never be destroyed. So, when you make your life about the kingdom, that kingdom, the kingdom of God, you make your life about something that will last, that will never be shaken, that will never be moved. When you stand for the kingdom of God in a world that is opposed to him, you make your life about something that is real and true and lasting. Join that kingdom. Live for that kingdom. Make your life about that kingdom. Build your life on that foundation. God's promise for you is that you will never be put to shame. If your life is lived for him, just like the book of Daniel flips that shame to honor, your life, your shame is transferred to great honor in his presence forever. Now, we started off talking about our choices, how our choices shape us. And these choices, as we're going to see in Daniel, shape Daniel and his friends. But there were other exiles there, not just Daniel and his friends, who also made choices, who likely gave in to the Babylonian formation project. They compromised on their beliefs, their morals, their values. And I think if we're honest about ourselves, we would realize that's us. We'd all like to dare to be a Daniel. But the truth is, we can all think of times where we have failed or where we have compromised. We've lived like the world. We haven't stood for his kingdom or for his ways. But that is exactly why King Jesus came. To deliver compromising and faithless saints like us. Here's what one writer said. He said, our entrance to the kingdom of God isn't dependent on our ability to remain undefiled by the ways of the world. That's not what gets us into the kingdom of God. Our entrance to the kingdom of God is dependent on the undefiled and pure offering of Jesus in our place. That's what got us there. That's what gets you home. He gets you home. We are part, 
If you've trusted in him, we are part of the greatest kingdom with the most beautiful king. The king who died for you and for me. So, take confidence in living for him. Why? He will provide. He will give you what you need on your way home. Why have confidence? Because his kingdom is the one that will actually last. It will stand forever. So ask him. Ask him to work through you wherever you are in the world right now. Wherever, whatever he has you doing in life, ask him to work through you. Ask him to move you to people and places, maybe here, maybe, maybe far, where you can manifest his glory and live for him and tell them about how great of a king and how great of a kingdom it is. So I'm just going to close with a question. What choices will you make to live for him today? Let's pray. Father, help us to answer that question. Help me to know how to live for you today. Speak to us now as we take some time to reflect on your sacrifice for us, Lord Jesus. and Speak to us later on in the day. We're just so thankful, though, Lord, that you, King Jesus, you came and established a kingdom that will never be destroyed, that you opened the way for compromising and faithless saints like me to come in. Send your spirit to us. Give us great confidence to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.